Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This past fall, one Saturday afternoon, there I was sitting on our couch downstairs, and across the rug were parts of plastic and metal, little sticker decals, and even a set of eyes that I was tasked with assembling into what's technically known as a cozy coop. Now, if you don't know that technical name, Cozy Coop, you've all seen one of these before. It's the little domed red and yellow car that many a toddler have had, the one where when they get old enough, you can pop off the bottom floorboard and they can stick their feet through and pedal away like Fred Flintstone till their heart's content. Now, this was a challenge, admittedly, because putting something like this together involves exactly zero of the God-given skills or abilities that I possess. And yet, as a father, and because I love my daughter, I wanted to make sure I was the one who did this. And so, for nearly three hours, I struggled with the screwdriver, popped plastic into place, stuck on the decals, and there sat assembled on that living room floor a cozy coop. And no, it wasn't perfect, I'll admit. I forgot to install the horn, which I learned last night as she was banging on it should have been an intentional mistake and the eyes still don't line up just right. But I had a bit of pride, a little bit of satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment, looking at what had been a, a mangled mess and now sat assembled as a cozy coop. But that pride, that sense of accomplishment, soon took a, a pretty significant hit when I closed the instruction manual, and I read words that I didn't see when I had first taken it out of the, the plastic. Because on the very front page of that instruction manual, in bold-faced type at the very bottom of the page, after I'd spent three hours putting it together, were the words, average assembly time, 35 minutes. And so at least on one Saturday, I had to admit that when it came to building a cozy coop, and by the illustrious standards of the Little Tykes Corporation, I was below average. In our Old Testament reading today from Ezekiel 37, the prophet Ezekiel is brought into what is even worse than a below-average sort of situation. It's a desperate one, a desolate one. The priest and prophet of the Lord, the faithful one, Ezekiel, the one who had the task of, of prophesying, serving God's people in a time when they were in captivity, when they were bearing the brunt, the business end of what their sins had produced, their faithlessness, their idolatry had produced, and were enslaved, captured by the Babylonians. It is that prophet and priest of the Lord that is led to a valley. And in that valley, he sees bones. And they're not just bones, but dry bones. And I will do my best over the next ten minutes, but no promises to refrain from singing at any point, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. See, they're not just regular old bones. It's not a neatly arranged set of skeletons that he sees, but they are vast. They are spread out. They're torn apart. They're not given a, a proper burial even. And as I said below, before, they are dry, very dry. These are utterly dead bones. And yet God asked Ezekiel a rather interesting question. Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I have to admit, the prophet Ezekiel probably thought if this had been a regular Israelite or one of his Babylonian captors, of course not. This, that's ridiculous. It's laughable. These are dead, dry bones. But in what I'll say is a good deal of spiritual maturity, Ezekiel remembers who asked him such a question and 
defers it. He says to God, O oh Lord God, you alone know. And so God gives to Ezekiel a prophecy to prophesy over these dry bones, and Ezekiel does as he's commanded, and the rattling begins. And the hip bone connects to the thigh bone, the leg bone connects to the ankle bone, more than just that, muscles, tendons, even skin itself begins to cover these bones. But there's still a bit of a problem. They are still dead bones. There are no, there are no life. There is no life in these bones. And so God tells Ezekiel to prophesy one more time. And when Ezekiel does again as he is commanded, breath, spirit, life, enters these bones, and what were once a collection of dead, dry bones instead stands before Ezekiel as a vast army. And then we get the words that I think actually are the most important words in this whole account. When God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, these bones are the house of Israel. These bones are the people of God. These dry Formerly dead bones belong to the children of God, the entirety of the children of God. Those who knew what it was like to know God and yet be faithless. Those who knew at great cost what their, their sin produced. Who knew grief and shame, knew exactly what it was like to be below average, at least when it came to their worship and praise of God. See, these bones, these bones, these bones... They tell a story, but it's not just a story in Ezekiel's day, but it's a story that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and it's a story that continues even today, a story that includes the whole house of Israel, all the children of God, a story that includes you and I today. And when you think about it, it's so easy at times to tell ourselves a few things, like, maybe our bones really aren't that dry, at least not when it comes to my spiritual life before God. After all, I'm in church faithfully. I read my Bible. I'm in his word. Yeah, sin stings. I'm bent. I'm dent. I'm damaged a little bit. But surely I'm not broken. Yes, my sin is a scratch, but a, but a flesh wound. But surely I'm not that dead and dry before God. Or perhaps your temptation is to think, like those in Ezekiel's day, the people of Israel at that time, our hope is gone. That because of just how dead my sin has made me, there is no comfort in the Lord. That I feel like I've been cut off from his promises, from his love, from his life. You realize to the full extent just how dead your bones are and you can be tempted at times to wonder, can there really be that peace, that joy, God's love and his life for me? Can I truly, in these dead bones, these dry bones, know what God's life for me is truly all about? What I think is so interesting about a valley of dry bones is, yes, each of those bones also tells an individual story. They have different upbringings, different mistakes, different sins, different loves, different passions, different joys, and yet there are no tears in that valley. There are no levels in that valley. There are no different stations of dryness. No, dead is dead. 
As Paul would remind the Ephesian church, all of us, in our sin and our transgression, we once walked in that death. And yet once more, think of the question God posed to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? And this time, hear God's answer to his own question. Yes, they can, but not by their own doing. See, we shouldn't simply dismiss what a text like Ezekiel 37 reminds us about our own lives. That we in our sin are absolutely dead, dry bones. But dry bones have life when God is at work, when his miracles take place. And if you hear nothing else this morning, remember this, that in Christ Jesus, in his son, God has been, is doing, and will always be doing through his good and gracious will the miracle that it takes to give you life. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to sacrifice, to give dead, dry bones life. And through his death, his resurrection, through the promise of the Holy Spirit, God desires each and every one of us to have that life. That God does, he can, bring to life even the driest and deadest of bones. See, the bones of Ezekiel 37, they're things that bear proof. Proof to the reality that we will one day know ourselves. And that it is his work that brings life to those bones. It is his word that brings life to those bones. And when it is God at work, when it is his word, when it is his life, it's never below average. But it always is above our expectation. This is the assigned reading for this weekend. Every fifth Sunday of Lent, every three years in a three-year lectionary, we read from Ezekiel chapter 37. And yet, I think it's a very appropriate reading for a weekend like this at St. Paul's, where in a few hours' time we will have a fairly important vote in this congregation's history. And if you missed the announcements or somehow have not heard, we are voting to go forward, embark on a capital campaign to see if we can raise the funds to responsibly construct phase two of Tell the Next Generation. And as I began to think about what that means, I began to realize it is sometimes through hindsight that God is best seen at work. I thought back to what that first voters meeting was like in March of 2017. And I was actually here, not as your pastor, but just as a, a student from Concordia Seminary filling out an observational report so that I could pass a class. It was a box I had to check. But I began to think what would have happened that day if I would have stood up in 2017 and said, hi, nice to meet you. One day I'll be your pastor and let me tell you exactly what happens with this building that you're thinking about building. I'm going to tell you where we're at with that building on my first day in the office as a pastor, on June 1st of 2020. We'll be above budget, behind schedule, and guess what? Surprise, there's a pandemic, and you don't even know if kids will legally be allowed to be in school classrooms come this fall. Now, first off, Dave Smith would have made sure I got kicked out of the seminary that next day. But second, there would have been a lot less fervor, excitement to hear what would be. And yet, what if I had stood up and not said June 1st, but let's just go into August of that year. In just two short months, the project would be mostly complete. 
There would be a, a significant increase in enrollment, but far more important than that, there would be an exponential increase in the number of baptisms, confirmations, number of families that are hearing about the Word of God through their children and through they themselves coming through our doors. There wouldn't have been a person in that voters meeting who wouldn't have been excited and rearing to go to get that campaign off the ground. And yet, it's not so easy when it's foresight that we require. It is true that in hindsight, we can see how God has been working bit by bit, piece by piece, but it becomes a little bit more difficult when the future is unknown. I thought back to my second Sunday here as a, as a vicar. The second time I'd ever preached in this pulpit on a Sunday morning was the day we did the groundbreaking for phase one. And I went back and I thought, what would a green vicar say on a day like that? I couldn't remember. So I went back and listened to my sermon. It's still on our website. And I found out two things real fast. One, the dozens of you who in Christian kindness looked at me earnestly that weekend and said, good sermon, vicar. I now know you were a little overgenerous with your assessment. But in a below average sermon, there was at least one aspect that I had no idea just how true these words would be. I said on that day that the breaking ground on that building is great because through its doors, children will learn about who is truly great in their lives. And you all sacrificed and gave up many things to make it happen. To receive children, provide for children, not just your own children and grandchildren, but for children and families you do not know. A school for all the children and families that walk through those doors. I'll admit I have absolutely no intention to tell you how to vote. That's not my job, that's your job today. But I have every intention to remind you just how much God has been at work in the last three years. That those increases in, in baptisms and confirmations, that's not just a one-year COVID blip, but now it's a continuing trend. And far sooner than we ever necessarily expected, we're asked a question. Are we ready to start phase two? That is a question for you to decide. And it is a daunting one. It's at a high greater number than we originally anticipated happening far sooner, and yet I'm reminded that maybe it's a good thing if we do go forward, that it seems daunting. It seems a little bit, dare I say, even impossible in one extent, because we have a God who does the impossible. He's been doing it here for 172 years. This church built a new sanctuary in the midst of a depression. We opened a school in the midst of a pandemic. And I was reminded this week in our, in our school chapel of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that we have all been given different gifts. There are all sorts of gifts to the one who contributes, contribute well. The one who encourages, encourage well. The one who serves, serve well. So my one bit of encouragement to you is if the capital campaign is the desire of this congregation, if prayerfully we consider that the will of God to do that in our midst, well then do it and do it well. Because we're reminded this weekend that we are a collection of dry bones who sit here, and yet, quite amazingly, we are the children of God. We are those who have life and love in the name of Jesus Christ. And may he, our Lord and Savior, get the glory forever and ever. Amen.